Hey guys, how y'all doing? Good. Thank you, Joe, for the song. We're going to get straight into it tonight because every single time I feel like I run out of time, so we're just going to start. Y'all turn with me to Luke chapter 24 if you've got your Bibles. Luke chapter 24, the chapter in the Bible where the whole study comes from that we've been doing for months and months and months now. I think it was in Leviticus. And read it and use that as a springboard. We're going to do the same thing tonight. So, Luke chapter 24. We know the story the two men walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had just been resurrected from the dead. He comes alongside them and is walking with them. We're going to look at verse 25. They're talking about all the things that have happened. He says, What are you talking about? And they said, Don't you know? And they talk about the events that just happened how Jesus was crucified, but then he's, he's gone. And Jesus responds to them. This is what he says in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he, broke, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. Lord, we want to stop what we are doing and come to you. Realizing that we can open up the Bible. We can study it. We can read it. We can memorize it. But it is you who opens our eyes. We realize that we can see the events for what they are and we can talk about them but it's you who enlightens us. Lord, our fear is that we look at Scripture and our hearts do not burn within us. Lord, please open our eyes to see your Son, Jesus Christ, the point of all things. Put your Gospel on display let that cause our hearts to burn and let that burning be a consuming fire that devours and burns away and consumes everything from this world. Pray that it is a purifying fire that leaves us with Christ and the gospel. Give us ears that are attentive to your words. 
for the next few minutes. We love you. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're looking at the book of Daniel. We're coming off of the previous book, Ezekiel. I'm really glad I did not have Ezekiel. It's a huge, huge book, 48 chapters. There's some similarities in the two because they both deal with visions, you know, in the Old Testament. Well, in, anywhere in the Bible, you're looking to see what's there. And so we've had different books. I've taught different books. In Leviticus, it was all about the, uh, the sacrificial system, the laws, the ordinances. It's a little bit different book. Kings was narrative. Uh, I've moved through different books. Daniel, again, is a, a shift. The book deals with things present and things yet to come. It's 12 chapters beginning to end. The first six deal with Daniel and his three friends and the kings during their time, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and all of the events that led to these really kind of fantastic events. The last six chapters deal with prophetic visions that happen in the future, in the future for Daniel. Uh, Daniel, for me, is an interesting book. That's my middle name. It's just the book I'm named after. I like it. When I was young, I learned that Timothy, my first name, means honoring God. Daniel means God is my judge. I've always appreciated it. I passed that name on to Micah, my son. So it kind of hits me at a special place. I feel like I've kind of got some connection to it. Uh, Daniel is an interesting book because plenty of people look at it and pull things from it. Y'all have heard of the Daniel diet? There's a special diet called the Daniel diet. People pull that from Daniel. I think that that's interesting. Uh, you pull from it a lot of uh, elements of a man of character, a godly man, a man that's heart is really submitted to the things that the Lord has commanded him to do. And all that's fine. We do that. We look at scripture. We look at the saints who have gone before us and their examples and how God worked in their lives. And we want to emulate that but not at the cost of missing Christ, right? We don't miss Christ when we put ourselves on display. We don't want to miss Christ for putting ourselves on display. So tonight, we're going to look at the elements of Daniel, what he uh, did, what God did through him, but we, we want to see Christ. That's the ultimate goal. If we were to break down the book, everybody knows something about Daniel. There's plenty of things uh, that were taught in Sunday school that you're going to remember. The first chapter deals with Daniel uh, being brought out of Jerusalem into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. You probably remember the story, and this is where the Daniel diet comes from. Daniel's evidently very smart, intelligent, got a lot of wisdom that God gave him. And we know that God does that. We know with Solomon, God gave Solomon wisdom, and God gives wisdom to those men that he wants to use in that special way, right? Daniel's one of these men. So he's renowned among the people, uh, among his own people. So when they bring him into captivity, they, they find out that this guy's really smart. He, along with a bunch of friends, get taken into the king's palace and they start feeding them the king's food. Well, Daniel says, that's not what I want to eat. Of course, he's drawing from scripture, right? Because scripture outlines what the Jews were to eat. So he says, if you will, I'm just going to put this to a test. Give me the food that I ask for. Give my friends the food that I ask for. If you're worried about us, if you think that your job is on the line, which the man did, he said, give us 10 days. At the end of 10 days, see if we appear better. And sure enough, at the end of 10 days, 
Daniel and his friends were not only surpassing the other men, but they looked better. And so there's an element there where you see we're probably not smarter than God. What God tells us is good for us is probably good for us. What God says is bad for us is probably bad for us, right? So many times we get this backwards. We think we're so smart. We think that I can figure this out on my own. This looks good to me. It should be good. I'm going to treat it as good. But at the end of the day, let's learn from somebody else. God is smarter. What God says is good is good. Do that. What God commands for us is going to be good for us. God has never commanded anything harmful to us, and he never will. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so that's true. I also want to draw, because I, I was looking at this, and I thought, how would I see Christ? In the beginning of this chapter, when you see Daniel brought into captivity, I thought, man, there's actually something significant in here. When Jesus comes into our world to be born as a man, there's an element where Jesus himself said, I'm not going to defile myself with the things of the world, right? That's where you see Christ at the very beginning. And that's why I said we want to see Daniel. We want to see a godly man. And we want to emulate that, but we don't want to miss Christ. See, Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he was the only, only man. He said, I am not going to defile myself with the things of the world. Me and you have not said that, cannot say that. There's only one man that's ever said that, okay? So we see Jesus even in these beginning elements, and, and that's important. Anytime we look at Scripture, if you have not ended at Jesus Christ, you have not gone far enough, because you can end short of that. Plenty of people do. But it is our job and aim to see Christ, because that's what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus is walking with these men and he's opening up the scriptures, he's revealing himself. Not good, godly character for these men to emulate, right? He's revealing himself because all scripture points to Jesus Christ because all things have been made by him and for him and through him. And without him was nothing made that was made. And guess what that means? He's the point of it all, not us, right? So the beginning chapter opens up with Daniel and these men and how they're brought into captivity and how they set themselves apart and distinguish themselves, not by their own creativity, but just by their obedience, by their willingness to step away from the world and say, we put our trust in God and what he says. Now, there's probably a hundred ways. If I just stopped the lesson right here and ask everybody in this room, what does that bring to your mind? What is a way that you could take that stand and say, I'm going to set myself over here, right? God has said this thing that's true, that's good for me, and I'm going to stand over here in the camp of believing God versus the camp over here. I'm going to be a little bit creative, right? Have my own will, right? Does that make sense? <coughs> We could probably sit here for a while and come up with a lot of ways that we could step over here. So I think this is a way right now I'm being convicted, I'm being led to believe that I need to take a stand on what God has said and be obedient to him. Right? I mean, honestly, we could stay there all night. 
but there's a lot here we don't want to move past. So chapter 1 deals with this. That's the major theme of chapter 1 where Daniel distinguishes himself. Chapter 2 is a little bit different. Chapter 2 uh, gets into King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So King Nebuchadnezzar is asleep and he has a dream and it troubles him. The very beginning of it, it says that his spirit was troubled. So he wants to know what this dream was that led to this troubled spirit. So he calls all of his smart guys, his guys that he relies on to reveal things to him. But he does something unique, and I want to see two things here. He sets up an impossible task, and he sets up a terrible punishment if they don't accomplish this impossible task. King Nebuchadnezzar calls all of his men to him, all his smart guys. He says, I've had a dream. It's troubled my spirit. I want you to tell me what it means. They say, sure, no problem. We got it. He said, no, I want you to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. They say, what? He says, yeah, you heard me. I want you to tell me the dream that I had. I'm not telling you that. I'm not giving you any details. I had a dream. You tell me what it was. And then you tell me what it means. Because, see, I'm smart myself. If I tell you what dream I had, you'll come back and say, well, we think it means this, right? He said, you're going to lie to me. Prove to me that you can give me the interpretation by first giving me the dream. Right here is the setup. It is an impossible task. And they tell him as much. No man can do this. No king has ever asked his smart guys to do this. We can't do it. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care. He says, you either do this or I will tear you limb from limb. I will kill you. And I will lay ruins to your house, your wife, your kids, your mama, your daddy, all of them. An impossible task and a threat of death if they fail. So immediately everybody starts scrambling and nobody can figure this out. Nobody can figure it out. Finally, Daniel hears that all the wise men are about to be killed. He stops, says, what's going on? The man explains to Daniel what's going on. Daniel goes to the king. He says, I can reveal this. He's, he actually says this. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel gives all the credit and all the glory to God right off the bat, okay? And he acknowledges that what the king has asked is an impossible thing. And this 
wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers, smarty pants. He's talking about smart guys. Guys that have studied, maybe guys that have shown, shown some kind of uh, ability to figure out things. Smart guys. None of the smart guys can do what you're asking. None of them. He acknowledges it. He says there's only one hope, and it's that God gives this to a man. Right? So I see the setup. You'll see the threat of punishment. Right? The vision, here's another place where we do see Jesus. The vision is this. As Daniel starts to unfold it, he says, you saw a statue. Its head was gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its legs were iron. And its feet were iron mixed with clay. Then he explains what each of these mean. And they're kingdoms, one after another. And each kingdom is going to be a little bit weaker than the previous kingdom. He says, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, are the golden head. The next kingdom will be a little bit lesser, and so forth. Then he says, but there's a stone that's cut by no human hand from a mountain. And in your dream, that stone comes and crashes into the statue and demolishes it. It actually demolishes it so fine that the wind blows it away. There's not even chunks left. It's like powder. Like it grinds it, right? So this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Now here's the thing. I could sit here and try to tell you who and what and when these were. But let me just do this. Although I could take a stab at it and maybe be right, the point of this is not to figure it out maybe as much as it is to see the end result. Human kingdoms fail. At the end of the day, America the Roman government, the Greece government, it, it doesn't matter. Look through history, look into the future. Every human government and organization fails. Okay? Because we're somewhere in that statue. We're somewhere made of the things of the earth. We're not the stone that was cut by no human hand from a mountain. We're not the stone that comes crashing in and demolishes the things that men have made the things that men have raised up, the things that men have organized, right? What is this stone that comes crashing in? It's Jesus and his kingdom. And it's literally spelled out at the end of the chapter. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And right here, we're going to miss something unless we pause and talk about it. Everybody in this room falls into a kingdom right now. Maybe you didn't have Nebuchadnezzar as your king, but everybody in this room is born into a kingdom right now okay there is only one kingdom that will last forever there's weight behind this you'll listen to me there's only one kingdom that will last for eternity there's only one king who will rule and be good to his people for all everybody else gets demolished destroyed laid to ruin right that's the reality. This is, this is not something spelled out for people a long time ago that we're exempt from. We're in kingdoms. 
There is an earthly kingdom and there's a spiritual kingdom. There's the kingdom here that is getting everything it can from this world because that's all it gets. And then there's the kingdom of heaven, right? God's kingdom, the spiritual realm. Maybe we don't get what this kingdom gets, but I wouldn't have it for what we gain in Christ. You see that? That's the reality. So instead of trying to pinpoint the kingdoms through time and say, I think, I think this king might have, might have been the silver king, which we could do, and that's fine. It's, it's the words of Scripture. Spend time with it if you want to. For me, I'm going to take a step back and realize that the point of it for me is that I want to be found in the kingdom of Christ. I want to be in that kingdom that does not get destroyed, okay? So, moving on to chapter 3, and we're going to come back and talk about the setup and all of this in chapter 2, but I want to move past because I want to see some other things. In chapter 3, we move again into a, a bizarre reality where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about himself being the golden head of the statue. Chapter 3 opens up with him making a golden statue. you think he would learn. He literally makes a golden statue. And then he, he sends out a decree to everybody, and he says, when you hear, and, and by the way, I'm just going to let you all know this. This notebook, I copied the entire book of Daniel. It's something I wanted to do. I've never done. Start to finish every word I wrote in this book, because I wanted to spend time with this book. I wanted to let its words wash over me. So every word I wrote down, and that's not a pat on my back, but what it is is it's letting you that something went into my brain, something came out of my head. I've spent a little bit of time with this book. One of the things that I got really tired of writing, <laughs> in chapter 3, when this decree gets sent out, there's this phrase that gets repeated. Nebuchadnezzar says, every time you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. I got really tired of writing this because it goes like 10 times. Sorry, harp, trigon, lyre. Like, it gets really old. And so it was, it was funny, like that, and then the, the names. Oh my goodness, I've spelled Belteshazzar, I don't know how many times. But as I'm doing that, it's, it's really important because certain words will start to stand out. That maybe as you're writing it, you know, maybe you don't catch if you're just reading it. Uh, but so King Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to make this statue. I want everybody to worship. He sends out a decree. Everybody, when you hear these instruments play, bow down and worship this golden image. Don't care where you are, what you're doing. Stop what you're doing. Worship. Okay? Well, there's certain people that are not doing it. Maybe these people were reminded of their fathers in ancient history making a golden calf and bowing down and worshiping it. And maybe they thought that didn't end too well. We've, we've learned that we don't bow down to the golden images that man make, right? So you've got these three men. The, sh the story shifts from Daniel into his three friends, Shad Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't fall down. Well, then the smarty pants guys, all the smart guys around the king, come to the king and say, hey, we've got these three guys. They're the Jews. They don't worship your gods. They're not doing what you ask. They're not bowing down. And the king gets enraged. Now, he had set it up so that everybody would do it or get thrown into a fiery furnace. It's another Sunday school story, right? We've all heard about the fiery furnace. So the king comes to these men. He says, are you not going to bow down? Like, I'll give you another chance, and if you do it, great. If you don't, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. He says this, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? A lot of pride. A lot of pride wrapped up in that. 
King Nebuchadnezzar comes to these three men. He says, I'm going to kill you. And who's going to deliver you? Is there a God that can deliver you from my hand? This is their answer. Y'all watch this. I, I'm going to point something out. This is what they say. Shadrach, this is in verse 16 of chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that 90% of the time what you read in Scripture, you hear something that wasn't there. So I'm just going to point out, because I, I had this problem. You know what they didn't say? They did not say God's going to deliver us out of this fiery furnace. They actually don't say that. They don't. Read it again. They don't say it. What they do say is that our God can deliver us, and he will deliver us out of your hand. All right? There's a point there for us. Our faith is not in God's deliverance of specific events, but that God can deliver us. Does that make sense? We don't say God's going to take this cancer out of my body. We say God can take this cancer out of my body. Does that make sense? We don't believe in God's, uh, God as the God that is going to, but he can. Y'all see what I'm saying? Okay, so we'll move on. They got it right. Here's another thing. Take this with you for the rest of your life. We don't serve and worship the God who just does do the things that we want him to do. We worship the God who can do these things. Does that make sense? Take that with you from here for the rest of your life. That, that's true. These men got it right. And when they say that God will deliver them out of the king's hand, they're right. Because what can the king do? He can destroy their body. But what do we know? Scripture says, don't fear the one who can destroy your body. Fear the one who can destroy the body. And after, throw your soul in hell. Right? So they got it right. They knew that the king had limited power given to him by God. And the worst he could do is destroy their body. That was all he had. That's the worst he could do. So Nebuchadnezzar hates their response. It's filled with anger. He tells the people to take the fiery furnace and heat it up seven times more. The people who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to the fiery furnace and throw them in, the heat from the furnace actually kills them. Okay, so bad day to be the king's fiery furnace thrower, right? <laughs> so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. But God delivers. God delivers them. And there's two events that are, in my mind, very powerful foreshadowings of God's deliverance. This, of course, is one, because they're thrown into fire, which we know awaits those who are not in Christ, right? So it's pretty poignant for us to see that these men, that they're thrown into the fire, but God delivers from the fire, right? God has the ability to give us the forgiveness of our sins so that we don't suffer his wrath on us in hell for all eternity, right? And so we see that picture here. And it could have been execution any other way, but I love Scripture. Scripture gives these events, and it'll have that word. 
And you take that word and you pull it. And that thread goes somewhere else in Scripture. And over and over you see this. We see it again with Daniel in the lion's den. We'll go ahead and skip forward because these two match up. When Daniel's thrown into the lion's den in chapter 6, there's a stone that's rolled over to seal him in. What does a stone rolling over make us think of? Jesus? It's a foreshadowing. Taking the man who was betrayed by prayer, by those close to him, thrown into something that should have killed him and sealed. And he walks out, right? So there's, there's things in Scripture. Here's, here's something to consider. I, I tell you that we always look for Christ, right? But always look for the words that Scripture uses. Take that word and pull that thread and see where it goes. A good example would be when we're talking about bread, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Well, Jesus is what? The living bread. Even in Genesis, we see the word bread used on the curse. You know, when, when God is pronouncing the curse on the ground because of Adam's sin, by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. Not food, bread. If you pull that string, you start finding where it goes through Scripture. And there's a whole thought that's connected because of one word, bread. So here again, we see fiery furnace. And it's its own thing, but the word fiery takes us all through Scripture. It makes connections. And once those connections are made, you see the pattern, right? And it's the same way when Daniel's thrown into the lion's den and a stone is rolled across, sealing him in, supposedly for good, to his doom and death. That stone takes us to Jesus. And we see Jesus walk out of a tomb where he was sealed in, right? Look for Christ, pull those threads, find where those words take you in Scripture, find the thoughts, the patterns, the consistencies, right? Let's be students of the Word in that way. So chapter 3, we go through the whole, the whole thing. They're delivered. When they come out, they don't even smell like smoke. And all of these events, if you start watching every single time, you kind of start to wonder, what's the point? Every single time the king worships, he says, wow, this is a God of gods. Or so often in Daniel, the, the word for God that they use is the most high God. We have to remember that this is not in Israel, right? This is in a foreign pagan land where there are lots of gods. So they're using the language that works in context with them. And over and over, what they realize is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, because of these events, because you're a revealer, you're, your God is a revealer of mysteries, and you can explain not only the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself, because I can throw you into a fire furnace, and you walk out and don't even smell like smoke. Your God is the most high God. miraculous things, although we may benefit from them, the point is always to see God. We see it in the New Testament. The most miraculous thing we have ever seen is Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. And that is what our hope is founded on, is that one of us, one of us people, a human, died and didn't stay there. You see, if Jesus never was resurrected, we would have no hope of being resurrected, right? We think the best we've got is that we die and we stay in the tomb and the stone is rolled and we're sealed. 
and we stink. That's all we'd have. The most miraculous event gives us the most hope, right? That our God can deliver us from death, which is our greatest enemy, right? So let's move on. Chapter 4, something really bizarre happens. Nebuchadnezzar gets put in his place. He's on his balcony looking out over his kingdom and musing about his power and his wealth and his greatness. And ultimately, God makes the man go crazy, takes him out of his mind, gives him the mind of an animal. And for years, for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar walks around like an animal eating grass. His hair grows out. His fingernails grow out. He eats grass like an animal because his mind has been taken from him by God. And he thinks like an animal. He sleeps outside, and, and nobody could get him, get him out of it until finally, if you're looking, because I see some of you looking in your Bible, you'll see that in chapter 4. I'll read it for us because it'll just take us a second. In chapter 4, verse 28, this is what it says. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, and there it is, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. So that passage talks about his, his humiliation after his pride. And he is restored, we'll read that. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done right here Nebuchadnezzar gets it and that's probably the theme of the book is that God is sovereign over kingdoms sovereign over kings sovereign over individuals and it is God working all things together for his will, right? We see the people being shifted in and out of place, but it is God doing the shifting. Chapter 5, we've got another crazy event. We actually covered this in our Sunday school two weeks ago. King Belshazzar, the next king in line, takes the 
cups and the vessels. Uh, he's having a huge feast, about a thousand people there, and they start drinking from these cups and vessels which were taken from Jerusalem, the Holy Temple, and they were made for God's use. And they're over here worshiping false gods and idols with them. And in the middle of this party, a hand appears from nowhere and writes on the wall. And it writes, Mene, Mene, Tikal, and Parson. And again, the king has no clue what this means, so he summons his smart guys. Finally, the queen says, I know somebody that's been able to reveal mysteries to your father in the past. His name is Daniel. Try him. Daniel comes in and interprets it. It ends with the king's death that night. So again, you see Daniel revealing a mystery. And again, you see God acting sovereignly. And in our Sunday school lesson, we, we talked about this, what God makes for his use, like the cups and the vessels, let's not dishonor with the worship of something else. That was kind of one of the points that we saw in that. You know, if God takes a cup and he says, I'm making this and consecrating it holy for myself, for my use, I, I made this to worship me, Let's not take that and worship a false God, right? That ends badly. And what are our bodies but vessels? Let's honor God with our bodies, okay? Just a thought. We get to chapter 6, and we have Daniel in the lion's den. And again, lots of elements in here that just directly correlate to Jesus Christ. We've got Daniel, who's betrayed by the people close to him by praying and not yielding up that when he was told he should only pray to the king. And so kind of goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying and someone close to him comes and betrays him, right? So we've got the picture of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and sealed. We talked about this. He should be dead. He should not walk out of this place. His life should have ended. This picture of Christ. Just like we got the picture of, you know, Jesus says, when he's talking uh, to some people, he says, no sign will, will, be given, will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Talking about how Jonah was thrown into the belly of a fish for three days. He comes out. It's the picture of going into death and coming out of death, right? He probably could have used Daniel. I don't know, just a thought. Because it's the same picture of a man going into death and coming out again. And just in case you're wondering, maybe these are kitty cat lions when everything is reversed and the king throws the wicked men, the lions attack them before their, their feet hit the ground. Like these lions, their mouths were shut by God, right? One last thing. Two last things. Chapter 7 on. I'm not going to deal with tonight. If you want to read it, I think it would be great. It deals with visions that God gives to Daniel. Two separate visions in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, that would be worth your time reading. Daniel makes a prayer, and it's a pretty convicting prayer where he's confessing the sins of his people, and he's saying, God, it's, it's right that we're here because our sins are so great, but at the same time, your name is not being upheld in the nation, so please deliver us from our sin. Restore to our... So it's this great prayer where Daniel pleads for mercy on himself and his people. And that actually reminds us of Jesus. Jesus prayed for his people. And the rest of the, um, the, rest of the chapter deals with the visions and God's response to the visions. 
I've found a lot of comfort. There's one verse where Daniel just says, I don't know what these visions mean. So when I read that, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to say I'm not smarter than Daniel. I mean, he's number one smart guy. I, I'm just going to step back from it. And if you want to read it, it's great. It's the Bible. I'm not telling anybody not to. I'm not taking a stab at it. I'm, taking in the fir- I'm just going to say in the first six chapters, that's where I think you see uh, Jesus Christ. The, the last six chapters absolutely deal with God's sovereignty over kingdoms and how there's only one kingdom that will remain. At the end of the day, that's the point is that there's one kingdom that remains, and that's where we're going to land on it for tonight. But I want to go back to chapter 2. I've read chapter 2 more than any other chapter. I got more excited about chapter 2 than any other chapter as well. It was chapter 2 that I feel like you see the elements of the gospel most clearly put on display. Let me see if I can make some connections. Y'all walk with me through this. We're almost done, so just a few more minutes. You've got a king with authority. The king says, I need this done by you or I'll kill you. That's the reality that Daniel and the wise men lived in. We live under a king. God is the king. God has given us something to do. Be holy. He's given us something to do. Be sinless. He's given us something to do. Be righteous. The king over here said, if you don't do it, I'll kill you. The king that we live under says the same thing. If you can't meet this requirement, I'm going to pour my wrath out on you. I'm going to kill you. All right? So there's a parallel here between the king that Daniel saw physically and the king that rules and reigns over all creation right now. It's a parallel. God set up a man over here that could do the impossible thing. Did you see that? Daniel did the impossible thing. He should not have been able to do it, but God set him up. He did the impossible thing. He said, I not only am going to tell you the interpretation, I'm going to give you the dream. It's impossible, but God set me up to do it. Over here, we have one man that did what God said needs to be done and is impossible. None of us ever could have done what God asked. We could not have been sinless. We could not have been righteous. We could not have been holy. We could not have been set apart from this world. We're integrated at every level with this world. Every molecule of our body is bleeding with sin. Okay? That's the reality. We, we bear the nature of Adam because he was our father. We're born in his likeness and the image of the man of dust. We've got sin nature in every molecule of us. We could not have done the thing. God set up a man to do the thing. Jesus did it. He said, God, I'm bringing you sinlessness. I'm bringing you righteousness. What nobody else has been able to do or can do, I've done. And in case you read that chapter and thought, I want to be the Daniel and be the godly man and be the man that God honors and has all this recognition, and all this fame, man, wouldn't that be great? In case you do that, because that's, that's what our hearts do. We put ourselves into the story. I'm going to tell you where we are. If we're in Christ, I'm going to tell you where we are in the story. The very last part of chapter 2. Y'all read this with me. In verse 48 of chapter 2, I'm going to tell you where you are if you're in Christ. Then the king gave Daniel high honors 
and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now that's not us, in case you missed it. That's the picture of Jesus who after his resurrection ascended to heaven and sits at God's right hand, right? Position of authority over everybody else, right? So where are we? The next verse. Look at this. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel remained at the king's court. In case you're wondering how you fall into that story, if you're in Christ, if Daniel's your friend, if Jesus is your friend, though you have done nothing, you get the benefits of it. Daniel's the one who revealed to the king, not us. Jesus is the one that did what God asked, not us. But, but if we're in Christ, we get the benefits of that. We get to walk through heaven's door and say, I get to be here. I get to be here not because I did anything, but because Jesus did it. Right? Here's the gospel on display in the book of Daniel. In my mind, most prominently, we benefit because of the man that God set up to do what we could not have done. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we could spend all night thanking you for Jesus Christ, the man that you set up to do what we could not do. And we look forward, if we're in you, to spending all eternity praising you for it, glorifying you for it. Lord, there is so much in the book of Daniel that we, we need you to do in our lives. We need you to carve us out of this world, to separate us, to sanctify us, set us over here, make us holy for your name's sake. That we would look different than the world, that we would take a stand and say, this is what God says. Lord, we need that. And again, I know we benefit from it. Lord, it is for your name's sake. It is for your glory. It is for your fame and recognition that we want it. That at the end of the day, the people around us bow and say, this is the most high God. Lord, that's what we're hungry for, is that you be renowned and seen. Jesus, thank you for the life that you lived, for the death that you died. And Father, thank you for raising your son up and giving us hope. We love you. We know not in a way that you deserve. We pray that we would love you every day more and more, and that that love would be a love of obedience and following. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.